Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritsch and Rick Broering with you after a kind of bizarre week for the Xavier Musketeers. Xavier uh, hangs on, beats Butler by two at Cintas Wednesday night, and then loses to DePaul by four on Saturday afternoon in a game that, Rick, you and I had talked about the last few weeks as just a game where Xavier needed to win, whether it was a, a can't-lose type of game. That was the type of game that Xavier really just needed to avoid. The one big thing about Xavier's resume so far this season was that they didn't have a bad loss on the resume. Now, this isn't the same DePaul as years past where they're the worst team in the conference and they're the worst team in the conference by a wide margin. That title this year belongs to Georgetown. This is a DePaul team that if luck really breaks their way, I'm not saying it's probably going to happen, but if luck breaks the right way and they maybe pick up another win or two, it could maybe sneak into the very bottom range of a quad two loss, probably going to stick as a quad three game, but this isn't some terrible quad four DePaul team that we've seen before. The difference is though, that they were missing a couple of guys that make that DePaul team what they were in the non-conference. There was really no reason, no excuse for Xavier to lose the way that they lost on Saturday afternoon. They lose by four. So where does Xavier stand right now? The Monday rankings update bracket matrix has Xavier still as a five seed, but their last update was on Friday before the DePaul game. AP poll still has Xavier in it at 25. That's down four spots from last week. The net Xavier only dropped by one in the net. If that gives you a little bit of a frame of reference for what Xavier had to go through last week, Xavier only dropped one spot down to 21. Ken Palm a little bit more. They're down to 26. But one thing in Ken Palm, Rick, that you noted is that the offense and the defense have both dropped double-digit spots. It was at 32 on offense and 31 on defense before the Butler game. Now, looking at where Xavier stands today, Xavier's 43 on offense and 44 on defense. So everything shifting in not the right direction for Xavier right now, but the sky is not falling. Xavier's still comfortably in the tournament right now. The reason people are a little uneasy is again, like we said last week, because things are trending like they have in years past. So let's get right into it. What do you see right now, Rick, as maybe the biggest issue for this team? What is the barrier to entry for the Xavier Musketeers right now to get back to where they need to be? Well, first of all, Paulie, congratulations on calling your first <laughs> Xavier game on radio with Byron Larkin. I listened through the under 12 media time out of that game because I was at it against Butler and it was hard to keep up with the radio in my ear that was like two, a play and a half, two plays behind what was going on on the court. So at the under 12, I took the earbuds out, but uh, I thought you sounded outstanding and uh, you and Byron made a really good team. So congratulations. Good job. I know I heard a lot of people that were texting me in group texts and um, hitting me up on Twitter and stuff that thought you were doing a great job. So uh, I have to imagine that was a fun moment for you. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it. And, and uh, I appreciate all the kind notes, everybody that reached out on, on the message board, Twitter, People that texted me like it was great. I, I was joking with Byron after the game. It's going to be nice one of these times when I actually get scheduled on one of these games and my stomach isn't in knots like an hour before the game when I got to get ready at the last minute, uh, like last year with the with the stream game. But no, it was great. And, and it's good to hear Joe's feeling better. I saw him on Saturday before the DePaul game. He's feeling better. He's back into it. Um, but yeah, it, we just got a call in the morning and they said, hey, can you step up and do this? And like I said to Byron, I. I was supposed to be the in-game host. I was going to be there anyway. And and uh, so they just slid me over into the radio spot. I thought it went great. Uh, I Nothing I would have done differently. And Xavier held on in the end. So that counts for something, I guess, 2-0 on my record. I'll that's, take it. That's right. That's right. Well done. <laughs> so to get back to your question, the sky is falling. I get it. The offense is clearly the biggest concern, in my opinion. And we can talk about both sides of the ball because there's been issues on both sides, but really right now it's the offense and the fact that they go through these stretches of futility so often, and it just keeps happening. And it's, it's, again, it's not just the, the games where you don't shoot well from the outside. It's like, Oh, okay. You're only five for 20 or five for 22 from the outside. It's games where it's, it's an entire half where you make one three or no threes. And 
you are shooting 30% from the floor and you have some just silly turnovers and your fifth year point guard doesn't score for 13 minutes and turns it over three times to start the game. It's things like that that just continuously happen. And the fact that they can't seem to build any momentum or consistency on that end, that's the part that would really concern me if I was a Xavier fan right now. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt about that one. And for me, Rick, where I look at this team right now, and if the biggest thing in my mind is is Nate Johnson and Adam Kunkel and the lack of production that Xavier is getting out of both of them right now. You look at Adam Kunkel's last five games, he scored 12 points in that loss at Marquette, didn't score against Providence, didn't score against Creighton, seven points against Butler, but all of his shots that he made, all of his field goals were inside the arc. DePaul, three points, just the one three. He's made one three, Adam Kunkel has, one three in the last four games. That can't happen for Xavier. Then on the other side, Nate Johnson, he has the 15 points against Creighton. You're thinking, okay, maybe he's back to where he was. That's the only game he's made a three in the last four games. That can't happen. Xavier's ceiling is not going to be what everybody's hoping it's going to be. If both of those guys are combining to go for their last five games in, in one game, they make one three in their last five games. That can't happen. It just, it can't happen. And, and Xavier's offense is going to struggle when you can't, when you, when you don't have guys shooting from the outside at a high rate. And the other thing too, is with Nate Johnson, I, I genuinely on Saturday, Rick, I genuinely felt, bad for him because it was the same you know Adam Baum had reported the the story from a few games ago where he said he talked to Nate getting on the bus or getting off the bus and he said Nate was really emotional about how poorly he was shooting and he had a shot on Saturday that hit the top of the backboard yeah it wasn't even close and and I was sitting in the stands on the other side of the court and you could tell that it was going to be an air ball because of how high his arc was on the shot but then it hit the top of the backboard and ricocheted off. And then I think the next possession down the court, he his foot was on the sideline when he caught the ball and he was going to be wide open for another three. It, it just, he's all out of sorts right now. And you don't want to say that he and Adam are the most important players on this team when you have guys like Nunji, Scruggs, and the rest of them, Colby Jones. But Johnson and Kunkel, they, they can't be going for their last five games and only making a three in one of them. Well, yeah, they're, they're the main sources of three-point shooting on this team. And unfortunately, as the season has unfolded, it's become increasingly more clear that they are a huge part of this offense. And this offense really struggles to function without getting some type of production from them from beyond the three-point arc. And a lot of people were asking me, why? Can you put your finger on it? What keeps happening to this team? Why do they go through stretches like they do in the first half of these games? Like they looked in the DePaul game for the first half. And then again, later in the game, it seemed like, and I've watched all of the games. I've watched them all back on synergy, breaking down possession by possession when I'm doing my write-ups and I've gone over a lot of stuff. And it's not just this year because like we've talked about, everyone right now is talking about the steel era and the last few years when they talk about this team. It's not about this team right now. And that's fair to some extent. I get it. Because especially after this DePaul game, you're just seeing a lot of the same themes reoccurring, a lot of the same issues popping back up with these teams. And one of the things I see is a lot of randomness on the offensive end. And what I mean by that is, okay, this game, Zach Fremantle, like DePaul, for instance. Zach Fremantle goes one for nine in the first half against DePaul, right? And in that game, you could just write that off as, well, one of your better guys and the guy who took a lot of shots in the first half went one for nine. Of course, you're not going to play very well offensively in a half where one of your main guys goes one for nine and, and misses shots around the rim. But the problem is, then the next game, you can point to Paul Scruggs had four turnovers or so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that. It seems like it's always something different. And there never seems to be anyone that can get into a rhythm and stay in a rhythm. And so I start wondering, is there enough of a plan? Is that maybe part of the problem on offense? It's a lot. We always hear, do what the game tells you to do. 
We know that they play a lot of their flow game and want to like read and react and play off each other and play with freedom. Is the freedom preventing guys from getting into more of a rhythm and feeling like they have a hot hand or being a go-to guy? Or does this offense not have enough consistency or enough of a plan to where you're getting your best guys into their spots frequently and getting them enough shots consistently? And on that note, it kind of you start you start thinking down that path a little bit and wondering, well, why would that be happening and what should they be doing instead? And I come back to something I've talked about a lot, and it's something that we talked about before the season during our preseason show. If you go back and listen, we, we laid it out very clearly. Who is this team's best players? Who is their go to guy? For instance, if you had Trayvon Blewett on this team. Everyone would be screaming if he's not getting 15 to 20 shots a game on this team, right? But on this team, who do you want to say that about right now? Who should be getting a bunch of shots consistently? And is that the reason why maybe there isn't a little bit more of a plan? And they're not playing through one or two guys a little more often. I think like that's it's been a consistent theme. And I, you know, I've brought it up at different times in different ways. And now we get to this point again, and I'm I still keep coming back to that, that I'm just not sure that their high-end talent is really good enough. Yeah, and you look at a guy like Jack Nunji, who probably at this point a lot of people would point to as Xavier's best and most consistent player. He had 12 points against DePaul, six. Then he's coming off of six points against Butler, but 16 against Creighton, 15 against Providence, and he's been Xavier's best three-point shooter in Big East play. He's kind of doing it all right now. And frankly, Nunji is kind of keeping Xavier's season afloat. But he's also not a guy that you're going to go out there and get 16 shots a game from and expect him to knock down four or five, three. Has he hit multiple threes in a game? Yes, he has. But you're not going to sit there and consistently ask him to do that every single game and put the weight of the shooting responsibility on his shoulders. He can't do it all. But He's damn near trying. Well, and that's a good question about Jack. Can he be that guy for this team? Because right now he's their leading scorer. He's averaging around, what, 12 and a half points a game, I think. But you go to the DePaul game. He has 10 points in the first half, I think. Only two after halftime, and he finishes with 12. Is that right? I don't have the box score up in front of me. Um, He just wasn't a a huge part of the offense. And I I looked back at the second... Yeah, I looked back at the second half of that game and watched, you know, each possession, watched what he was doing. And early on, I thought he was really involved. He got a bucket inside. He got his one shot blocked by on Genda. Um, and then there are a couple of plays where like one, he was sealing off. I think it was Brandon Johnson at the time. He was sealing off the center for DePaul as Colby Jones drove the lane. And, and he kind of used that as a moving screen and Colby Jones was able to finish. And then there was another play where Nunji had an assist low. So like he was really involved early in the second half. Then he came out of the game for the stretch that DePaul went on their big run. Then he came back in the game and didn't really get too involved in the offense. And, I, you know, who is that on? To me, it would probably seem like a little bit of both, both Travis and Nunji and the other guys on the team. Um, but I also have noticed, and I think other people have noticed this on the message board, that it seems like Jack Nunji really wears down in some of these games. And it seemed like they were limiting his time on the court early in the season. You have to imagine that was with this in mind, that he's never really played this amount of minutes. He's still coming back from a knee injury. He just seems to really be huffing and puffing sometimes in the second half of these games. And I wonder if that's part of why he disappeared a little bit in the second half of that DePaul game. But it still, it still leaves the question open. As good as he's been, is he a guy that you can play through as like a, a go-to type player, you know, I mean, even with Providence having Nate Watson, who's probably the best low post big man in this conference and their de facto guy for the most part, it's been Al Durham a lot for them in important moments and riding that guy. It's a, it can be hard to throw the ball into the post as your main source of offense, especially late in games in key moments. So I don't know. I don't know if Jack Nungy can be that guy for this team or not. I don't, what do you think? Yeah, it's tough to see the durability there of Nunji when you get in late in the games and you can tell that he's laboring. I think that's the best way to put it. He's just kind of laboring up and down the court. And I think it's a little unfair with the rest of the talent on this team 
to expect him to do that. I think at some point here, Rick, somebody's going to have to step up. I, I don't think it's fair to Jack to throw him into the fire to just expect him to have to do this. Does he have the skill and the capability to do it? Yes, he's shown that this year. But there are plenty of guys on this team. Paul Scruggs, Colby Jones, Nate Johnson, even Adam Kunkel when he gets hot, streaky. John, Nate Johnson's been streaky. There are talented guys on this team that don't have to put the weight of the season on Jack Nunji's shoulders. I didn't even mention Zach Fremantle in that group. And it's only been in the last few games that really there's been a more consistency out of Zach Fremantle. But even in that well, first half, like you said, <laughs> against DePaul. Yeah. Like, or extreme inconsistency, but at least we saw some good. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in the last, and you know, in the last three or four games, it, it's, it's gradually been, okay, we're seeing a little bit more out of Zach. We're seeing a little more out of Zach. Then the Butler game, you're thinking, okay, there's the big step in the right direction. Then he takes the step back. What, what, what are we doing here? Right? Like, I, what are we doing here? Yeah, that's, that's one where I'm not exactly sure what to make of what we saw from Zach. Now, to be fair to him, the first half of the DePaul game was mostly just him missing shots around the basket, yeah. which is a problem, but it's also not like, you know, when he first got back and we were wondering what's going on where it looked like he couldn't play. I mean, he just looked yeah. like a walk-on that shouldn't be on the court <laughs> at all. Now, he, you know, he's, he's playing. His defense isn't as bad. And he just missed a bunch of shots in the first half. But the thing is, it, I didn't think they were bad shots to be taking necessarily. Now, they weren't all good. But coming off of the Butler game and the way we saw him play, they were all shots that he was making in the Butler game. That was yeah. the exact type of stuff he was doing. It's what we've seen him do a lot throughout his career. So I don't know exactly what to make out of the first half of that DePaul game. He was better in the second half. He finished off some shots and looked like he had a little more spring in his step. But um, let me ask you this. I posed this question in, in my write-up. Is Zach Fremantle the biggest reason to be optimistic about this team's potential still down the line? Because when we what we saw against Butler, if they can get that Zach Fremantle at some point somewhat consistently and he can be a regular factor again on the offensive end where half the time or more he's leading you in scoring he's averaging 12 to 15 a game is that this team's best chance to improve and is that a, a legit reason for optimism at this point well I, I think you're spot on and look at the teams that Xavier has left on the schedule and the size that a lot of these teams have Seton Hall Connecticut Providence Connecticut Again, uh, St. John's has a little bit of side and then Georgetown at the at the end. Like this is a schedule the rest of the way that for Zach Fremantle, you can take advantage of. And if Zach Fremantle gets back to where we've seen him the last couple of years and feeds off of maybe what he did against Butler, that raises the ceiling of what this team is capable of doing because over the last, uh, I don't know, probably four or five games before before that, uh, let's see what it what, what would have been the Creighton game. When you look at the this first stretch of Big East play where Zach was really struggling, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, go as one guy goes. And last year there were a lot of times when it was just Zach doing a lot of the scoring, taking a lot of shots, but scoring a lot of points. And now it comes down to a stretch run where Z Xavier has a chance to put a stamp on the resume and pick up a lot of key wins. There are a lot of really good teams left on Xavier's schedule. It's not like this is a cupcake schedule the rest of the way. And if Zach Fremantle is able to go out there and produce at the level that we have seen him in his past two years, then, yeah, you're right on, Rick. I think so. Yeah. No, I mean, that's going to be a huge point, I think, for this team to watch down the stretch because it can also go the other way. If he continues to have halves like he did in the first half against DePaul, this team probably has no chance of, of getting to where they want to go and, and really playing well down the stretch because in a lot of ways he took them out of the game by taking nine shots in the first half or missing nine shots in the first half. He just ha he has to be better. And a lot of what we talked about coming into this year and we've talked about since the year has gone on and at times when they've hit rough patches is you came into this year expecting Zach Fremantle and Paul Scruggs to be two of the best players in the conference, not just Xavier's two best players, but two preseason all Big East first teamers. They haven't been anywhere close to that, if we're being honest. We talked about Fremantle 
but Scruggs still has to be better. If he's the go-to guy, and it seems pretty clear he is, or at least he's going to get as many tries to be that guy for this team as possible, then he has to be better. His decision-making cannot be what it's been really this entire season. And don't get me wrong. Like, I see all these people talking about he shouldn't be playing or Dwan Odom should be running the offense instead. I don't know what those people are watching because this team had absolutely no chance against DePaul on Saturday without Paul Scruggs. Now, he cost them early. He's part of the reason they dug that 13-point hole in the first half, and they were down by seven and a half done. And he didn't get off to a great start in the second half either. But he's also, late in that game, the only real offense they had down that stretch. And the guy who brought them back, the guy who was creating a lot of what was going on. Not to mention all this stuff about Dwan taking over. Who Again, I'm a big Dwan Odom fan. I came into the year. I said, you might need to start him alongside Paul because that might just be your five best players. It might be the only way you can get all five of them on the court at the same time. I was all in that camp. But let's be honest about what we're seeing. Dwan hasn't forced their hand at all as the backup point guard. In fact, when he came in and played well against DePaul, he was playing off the ball alongside Paul Scruggs a lot of the time. He wasn't even running the point. So all these people are talking about the offense runs better when Dwan's in there at point. I don't think they're even watching the game. He has not, it has not run better when he's been at. He's turned the ball over. He's made some bad decisions. And then in this game where he played one of his better games, he was four for four from the field and gave them some offense. He was playing off the ball a lot of the time when he was in there with Paul. So, yeah, I don't really know. And by the way, he was in the game and running the point when DePaul went on their big run in the second half, the 13-0 run. So I'm really not sure what people are talking about with all of that. But the bottom line is Paul Scruggs has to improve. It, like You're not going to, to get anywhere this year if Paul Scruggs doesn't have a special end of his senior year finish like we've seen from seniors in the past. Yeah. You're exactly right. And there's a couple of things, Rick, that I think to point out about the end of this DePaul game and how it all played out. One is that DePaul scored. Nick and Genda got a dunk with three minutes and 11 seconds left in the game. DePaul finished the game without a field goal from that point on. The last 311, they didn't make a field goal. They finished one for their last nine and oh for their last four from the field. When Genda got that dunk, it was 64 to 57. DePaul had a seven-point lead. Final score was 69 to 65. You feel like if you're Xavier and you don't let DePaul score from the field in the last 311 and the free throws that they get are, you know, basically right at the end of the game when Xavier had to foul, you give yourself a pretty decent chance to win and Xavier just couldn't get it done there at the end of the game. Now you put yourself in a hole losing by seven points with three minutes left. But we've seen Xavier dig themselves out of a hole like that before and against a DePaul team with seven scholarship players. That's a game where at the end of the game, just like it was at Wintrust in DePaul, at DePaul, that's a game where Xavier just has to survive. They just have to win. They just have to find a way to not lose the game. And coming down the stretch, they get some defensive stops when they need to. And again, DePaul misses eight of their last nine shots and Xavier still isn't able to get over the hump. Now, one other point that I think we do need to at least throw in there, and it's not the reason Xavier lost the game, but, you know, as a lot of people pointed out on Twitter, there was a jump ball issue and it should have been Xavier's basketball with about a minute or so. I was less than a minute. I couldn't go back and find the exact timestamp of when it was, but with 14.56 left in the game, there was a jump ball that went to Paul's way, and the arrow never changed. And with about a minute left, Xavier would have been down two with the basketball. Now, a lot of things would have had to go right, right? You, you can't point at a possession arrow mistake as the reason you lost to a DePaul team at home that had seven scholarship players available. Let's right. get, it, let's get yeah. that out. There is no excuse that, for that. that. That's not the point, though, of what you're bringing up right now. No. But the, the point is that when you look at how that possession arrow played out, this is a game where you just want to win by any way possible. And if it means that you're getting a game-winning shot at the end and you're just not losing and you're pointing to something like that, that is a big deal. And it should have been Xavier's basketball with whatever it was, less than a minute left. And 
it happened. It, it, it happened. There's nothing you can do about it in the sense that there's nothing you can do about it after the game. And it just, it, it's a tough break for Xavier where you're down to, it's not like Xavier was winning and then DePaul got the jump ball. They came down and hit a game winning shot and really, you know, things, things would have had to go right for Xavier. They would have had to tie or take the lead. Then they would have had to get a stop on the other end. Cause DePaul probably would have had a chance for the last shot. A lot of things would have had to happen. It's not like it was a tie game. Xavier could have held for the final shot. They still were down two points when that jump ball happened, but they would have at least had the ball instead of then having to turn around and foul and be down four, chuck up some threes at the end, none of which went in, and then you just die a slow death. That is a, a tough break, and I know a lot of people were asking, where does that responsibility fall? Who, how does Xavier not catch that? Ultimately, that's the official's responsibility. The, the head of the whole thing, the, the, the responsibility falls with the officials that they – failed to keep track of that. Now, are there people that may have been able to catch that along Xavier's side? I don't know who's responsible for keeping track and, and how that all goes down, if there is somebody. And I know it's frustrating to hear something like that, which is a, a technical issue that just didn't go Xavier's way. But that is something that did not play out in Xavier's favor in the last minute of that game. Yeah, so Paul, that was... Um... Something that I know everyone was really frustrated with after the game. I, yeah, I, every people wanted answers about it. It was like, oh, we're going to have to go to Adam Baum and have him ask the question and all that. And it's like, <laughs> look, I mean, any of us can ask the question. Um, at the end of the day, what can be said other than that? Then we screwed up. Someone screwed up. You know, I mean, like, there's yeah. really nothing that can be said. It's not, uh, Travis, what's your philosophy on fouling or not fouling up three with five seconds to go? It, something that he can explain why he chose to do that. There was no decision made. Someone missed it. Someone missed it. Like, let's start. It, it starts at the, the scores table. There's someone keeping the official score. That's who you usually rely on for this, the refs and that person. They missed it. The the natural thing, if you're a Xavier fan, is to say, well, isn't someone on the staff keeping track of that? To be honest with you, I don't know that they have someone doing that or not. My guess is after this moment, if someone was doing it before, There'll be someone new in charge of it now going forward and someone that's probably a little bit more uh, higher up or focused on the game. And then two, they might not have had someone. They might've just relied on the book in the past. And you can say that's a huge error. Okay, fine. We'll chalk it up as a learning experience. I don't know what else you want me to tell you about that or what else you'd want Xavier to tell you about that. They screwed up. They screwed up. It's a big moment. You're right. It might have cost them uh, an opportunity to potentially tie that game or take the lead and just survive one at home against a bad DePaul team that was missing Javon Freeman Liberty and Javon uh, Johnson. But it didn't happen. So, yeah, uh, uh, here we are. And to your point, you're right. That is not what cost this team the game. But that was never really the point. It's still something that you just cannot have, especially in your home gym when you're in a close game like that. So, that's one of those kind of is what it is things uh, you learn from and move on, I guess, but it doesn't make you feel any better in the moment. So we were talking about just Scruggs and Fremantle not being good enough really for this team. And I think a, a lot of their struggles on the offensive end can come back to that. And the fact that when we look at the best players in each game, whoever Xavier's playing, how often do you think they have the best player on the court in the Big East? And this isn't like a easy, a hard and fast way to do it. Scoring isn't the end-all be-all. But let, let's just look at some of the top scorers in the Beast, right? Javon Freeman, Liberty at DePaul. Granted, they didn't have to play against him. Instead, they've lost to, well, they almost lost to David Jones the first time around, who was the best player on the court. And then they almost lost, they did lose to Curvassier McCauley, who was the best player on the court in the second game. That's not great. That's a problem. Uh, but l- let's move on. Uh, St. John's, Julian Champagny, second leading scorer in the league. For my money, he's by far the best player in this league. Xavier doesn't have anyone on his level. Uh, Villanova, Colin Gillespie is third in the league in scoring, 17 points a game. I think we can all agree he's he would be the best player on Xavier. And uh, you could probably throw Justin Moore in that group too with Villanova, who's high up in scoring. He'd be better than anyone on Xavier's team. Let me go to Marquette. 
Justin Lewis, clearly the best player on the court in that game. I don't think there's any argument. I think you could even include Daryl Morsell before you include any Xavier players, probably the two best players on, on the court in that game. You want to go to UConn, RJ Cole, and probably Adam Sanogo, both better than anyone Xavier has. RJ Cole's averaging 16.4 a game. Seton Hall, Jared Roden, averaging 15.3 a game, and clearly I think better than anyone either team has on the floor. Um, Providence. Providence is to me is the team that's most like Xavier this year because you have a big man in Nate Watson who's probably their go-to guy, but it's hard to have your go-to player be a true post player that can't stretch the floor at all. And that's really what Nate Watson is. He can step out a little bit in the mid-range, but he's not an outside shooter or really a shooter. They've got him and then they've got Al Durham as kind of their tandem. And to me, that could be pretty similar to Xavier with Nungy and Scruggs, or if Fremantle really comes around, Fremantle and Scruggs. So I think Providence is probably the closest team to what Xavier is personnel-wise. Problem with Providence is they know exactly, or the difference, I should say, between Providence and Xavier is they know exactly who they are. I mean, it's, you know, it's Nate Watson, it's Al Durham, and then after that, it's it's probably one of their two guards, right? Like Jared Bynum makes some plays and, and shoots a lot, but like they know how they're going to play and how they're getting their points and who they're pointing the finger at when things don't go right. And it's, it's not this, we have so many different guys, it's a different guy on every night. It kind of is for them. They have different guys that can step up and lead them in scoring, but you know who's going to be their guys at the end of the day, and you know who they're getting their shots to, and you know who they're trying to get their guys in their spots. Um, I mean, even, even if you throw out Georgetown, there's – you know, it's in the conversation. Aminu Muhammad and Donald Carey, you're, you're in the conversation there. Like, I, I think Xavier probably can match up with Georgetown. You can argue that Paul Scruggs is going to be the best player in that game, but Georgetown's a far way off the rest of the conference right now. So I don't think you want to be comparing yourself to Georgetown saying, hey, no. we got better talent than they do. You know, so and that just sort of speaks to the point of it is hard to win games in any league when you don't have the best player on the floor consistently. Yeah. That's the spot Xavier finds themselves in almost every night in the big East with this group right now. And so, you know, I mean, like you go back to, is it, is it coaching? Is it system? Is it personnel? I think the answer is probably a combination of all of it. Right. But it definitely, the farther I go into this, I think a lot of it has to do with the personnel. And that still goes back to the coaches are responsible for who they have on their roster, who's getting the minutes, how those minutes are being allocated. So I'm not trying to like pass off blame and say, oh, it's not the coach's fault. The players just aren't playing well. That's not at all what I'm saying. They are still responsible for getting the right players. But I think the one thing that's becoming increasingly more clear to me is that they got to get some better high-end talent. I think they've got the right, like Colby Jones is a nice player. You know, uh, Dwan Odom, I think, is still going to be a really nice player at Xavier. Like, I think they've recruited well but they just haven't been able to replace those top guys. And, and Zach Freeman and Paul Scruggs haven't quite developed into those types of guys that you hope they might have. You mentioned the word development. Is that something that has become a concern for you over the last few years? I know that that's something, especially in the big men, when you look back at the Chris Mack era and Mike Begeese and the way guys like James Farr, Jalen Reynolds had developed, Matt Stainbrook, Xavier you know, they, they developed some great big men and you have Zach Freeman last year who wins most improved player in the conference. And now this year maybe has taken a little bit of a step back Granted, he was hurt, but has maybe taken a little bit of a step back. Do you see development as an issue for this staff? Well, I mean, let me ask you this. Who was developing Zach Freeman when he went to freshman to sophomore year and was most improved? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Like, so let's talk about the big men that they've had. How many of the big men have they actually developed as their big men? Right. It's been, I mean, yeah. Hank, Hanky McSpanky was a one year rental. Yeah. Um, Tyreek was at the end of his career. Tyreek was a Mac guy mostly. And you would argue he got better under the previous staff, probably. Right. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, who's been the, the big men since then, really? I mean, we've, we've had Fremantle. Nunji is now a transfer into the pro like I just Fremantle to me is kind of the main big guy that's yeah. been their project or their development and you can argue Deontay Miles hasn't developed but like Deontay Miles was a project 
I, yeah, a real pro. I, I've had very little faith, and I saw Deontay Miles more than anyone on Xavier's staff or anyone like he was a Northern Kentucky kid that went to Walton Verona. If you look in the Enquirer from that year, I wrote multiple stories about him, including a long feature. He played for John Brandon's brother, who I've known for over a decade. Like I watched Deontay Miles a lot. I like Deontay Miles. I thought it made some sense to take him and take a chance on a guy who was seven foot with some skill and great shot blocking instincts. But I also said when they took him, there's a reasonable chance he's not going to be good enough to play in the Big East. This is a shot in the dark, trying to find a diamond in the rough and develop a guy. So I don't look at that as an indictment on their ability to coach up big men or develop players. Now, if you want to go away from just the big men, you want to talk from a more overall perspective. My biggest concern as it relates to this staff and the development of their players is why can nobody shoot? Like, why do guys, you know what, why do you guys seem like they get worse (laughs) as shooters here? Is it the system? Is it again, not just like not having a plan. I talked to Brad Redford the other night for a while after an NKU game. And he brought up the point that he felt like Sean Miller really had a good plan for him when he first got to Xavier of like how they were going to use them. And then later on, you know, throughout his career, he felt like it was more about the, the other team, if they had, if they had read the scouting report and realized that, Hey, you don't leave this guy wide open from three point range, just put a body on him. Then a lot of times Max staff's plan for Brad was to just, he can't play now because the other team knows the scouting report. So he's not athletic enough. We're just not going to play Brad. And uh, whether that's fair to Mac and his staff, I'm not sure, but like, it just kind of got me thinking a little bit about like that, you know, that makes sense, especially when you're talking about guys like Nate and Adam who are a little bit more, just shooters in terms of their game, is there enough of a plan for them? Are they getting the right shots? Are they, are you, and, and like, to me, it seems like they run a lot of good stuff for those guys. Like we see those guys get a lot of open threes. We see them get it off movement. They run good open th- shots, Rick. They are getting, they are missing wide open shots. And, and it's a lot of, off a lot of sets and stuff too. Right. So it's not, I mean, it's yeah. not like they're not trying. And, and so again, I've watched a lot of the stuff I've broken down. I can never put my finger on exactly why, they have these issues when they crop up or why they're inconsistent or why this team can't shoot for long stretches. And it seems to be such a problem so regularly, but at some point when it keeps being a problem, you do have to ask yourself, okay, what is it about the system or the coaching, or maybe it just really is the personnel. I mean, you go back to our preseason podcast, Paul, that you and I did when we were making our predictions and everything else. I mean, I flat out laid it out for the fans that, I was very concerned about the idea of this team just being better because all the players on the team were going to play better and shoot a better percentage than they had previously. Like I compared it to what the Reds and the Bengals have often done in the past where they just go, oh, this year's going to be better because we think these guys who were on our team last year are actually better than they looked last year. They're going to play better this year, so we're going to be better. That's kind of what Xavier was saying coming into this year. Yeah, they added Jack Nungy, but a lot of it was just like, well, Adam Kunkel didn't shoot as he as well as he should have last year. And Nate Johnson got hurt down the stretch and kind of hit a slump. So he wasn't what he was down the stretch when we struggled. And Paul Scruggs can shoot better, like all that type of stuff. It was a lot of that, like guys are just going to play better. That concerned me. It also concerned me that going back to last year, I often said they don't have the best player on the floor most games. They don't have a closer. They don't have a go-to guy. That has been a problem again. Like I, I keep getting all this stuff. I think people have completely misconstrued what I am, how I cover this team, and what I, people think I'm like optimistic about this team, and I don't want anyone to be negative or pessimistic or anything like that. Could not be farther from the truth. I do not care. I don't think your team's that good. I haven't thought your team was that good since the beginning of the season, and maybe that's why I'm not reacting in the way you want me to. You guys want me to act like uh, the sky is falling and the coach should be fired when the team's ranked in the top 25, when they're really right about where we had. You go back to our preseason predictions. I had them at 21 and 10. Granted, 13 and 7 in the Big East. You take away the Georgetown win and put them at, basically, they'd have to finish 12 and 7 now, which is looking unlikely. But I also thought they'd lose three games in the non-conference and they only lost one. So, that balances out a little bit. And, um, you know, it's like, can they go four and four down the stretch here? If so, they're basically a game off of what I thought in Big East, and they're dead on what I thought they'd be for the season. So I I don't think they're, like, hugely underachieving. I don't think that this coaching staff is doing a terrible job, but I did think coming into the season, there were some concerns about the roster they had put together. And I think that some of those concerns have really bared themselves out. 
Yeah, that's a, all well said and a great way to put it. And I think the biggest thing, too, with the way that Xavier has manifested this season is that they have shown flashes like that second half in Creighton. They've showed flashes in the non-conference, like against Ohio State, what they did to Cincinnati. Granted, Cincinnati is not a great basketball team, but they have showed stretches this season where they have been very, very good. But as an average of this team, it's exactly right. And, and, and we, we laid it out. We talked about it, how when you just bring back the same guys from a team that missed the NCAA tournament, what can you really expect? Are you really going to expect this team to go from missing the NCAA tournament, adding one high major transfer in Jack Nungy, and then all of a sudden you're going to be a protected seed in the NCAA tournament? I don't think so. But I think the expectation for this year is always to make the NCAA tournament. And right now you're sitting there as probably a, a borderline six seed, right? The racket matrix has them as a five, but that was before the DePaul game. So you're probably sitting there around a six seed right now. Every single bracketologist in the matrix has them in and has them in comfortably. So when you look at it like that and you're thinking to yourself, okay, how does the season go along? Well, they're going to have to eventually either do something different and make some type of a run, or they're going to have to turn things around. And I, I think there's, I think there's an in-between. I think there is, there, there is a in-between between the sky is falling, fire the coach, and this team can be a three seed in the NCAA tournament. If they go eight, no, the rest of the way, they'll be a three seed in the NCAA tournament. They're not going to go eight. No. And if they do, then you can cut this and clip it and send it to freezing cold takes. But there's a middle ground in between that. And I think that middle ground is exactly where this team is right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's kind of where we thought they could end up. And I mean, I just went back and listened to some of our preseason podcast last night before we recorded this one, because I want to see what did we actually say about this team? What do we think they were doing? And it's like, you know, a lot of our concerns were what we've seen so far this year. They, they've played out. Now, we thought there was a chance that this team could really turn things around. And I guess a, a lot of fans are going to say, okay, yeah, it's the same team, but you had a, a highly rated recruiting class from last year that were freshmen with like, you know, Dwan Odom and Colby Jones. And how are those guys going to develop? And I think Colby Jones has come a long way. I think he looks like a better player, but I also don't know that those guys, their style of play gave you what this team actually needed. Like they are kind of redundant pieces. They give you a little bit more of like some of the things that maybe Paul Scruggs is giving you or, you know, what, what have you. So it's like they needed maybe more of a spark on offense, maybe more of a guy that could go create his own shot to help spark them a little bit off the bench. And that's not what those guys are as much. They're more like, I think Colby can be a star, but he's a star that's kind of in a, a role player's mold, right? He's not like a, a super aggressive offensive player. He's a, a playmaker, a guy who does everything pretty well and is hopefully going to continue to, to gain more steam on the offensive side. But th those guys just didn't give them exactly what they needed from a young recruiting class to this point. So it's hard, again, to, to figure out exactly where this team has gone wrong and why they've struggled and why all of a sudden they can go on these stretches where they look like an absolute buzzsaw and a top 10 team in the country. It yeah. seems like a lot of it has to do with when they're shooting well from the outside, but it doesn't really jive that they can look so good at times and then so bad pretty consistently. Yeah. Is, is there anything you would do right now to the rotation, to the lineup, to anything that you feel like you would do differently to maybe try and get some of that mojo back? Or is it just, Hey, let's, try to keep doing what we're doing and hopefully the shots start to fall. Well, if I did change the starting lineup, it would purely be let's change something for the sake of changing it because we feel like we're not playing well right now. I mean, that would be the only reason I would do it. Cause if I'm before the season, I wanted the starting lineup of Dwan Odom, Paul Scruggs, Nate Johnson or Adam Kunkel, whoever you deem is the best option at that other guard spot. And I think that still is changing from game, a game to game basis. I still, still don't know if there's a great answer there right now. I'd probably say Kunkel, but you know, a couple of weeks ago, it would have been Johnson Colby Jones at the four 
and uh, Jack Nunji at the five. Now, the way the season has played out, I think my answer would be different. I think I'd go with the starting lineup they're playing right now. The, to me, those are the guys that are playing the best. I'd go uh, Paul Scruggs, one of Nate or Adam, Colby Jones, Zach Fremantle, and uh, Jack Nunji. So I, I might change the lineup just to be like, we need something else. We need a different look. We got to put these guys on notice a little bit, something. So I would, I would just probably change it for the sake of changing it. But I don't think the starting lineup is the issue. I don't think that's what's causing their slow starts. Um, in terms of what other rotation changes I might make when it comes to subbing, as much as we talk about this team being deep and all the options and weapons they have, I don't know that I really feel that good about going very far into my bench. I don't know that. I wouldn't play Jerome Hunter hardly at all. I'd have him at eight minutes or less per game. And I'd probably try to play those five starters plus Odom and the extra guard, Adam or, or uh, Nate, whoever's on the bench to start. I'd try to play those seven as much as possible. I think that's right. And Jerome, Jerome at least has been serviceable shooting the basketball oh. in the last few games but yeah. i mean it's not like he's, he's lighting the world on fire he's made but. a few more shots but man i mean there's just still the, the mental air i like that ball going out of bounds the other day where he goes oh, yeah chase it down saves it and throws it directly in the backcourt for a three on oh break for the ball i like it's yeah. stuff like that where really hard to win when you have those types of lapses yes. and you're getting yeah. enough of them out of like the guys who handle the ball for you you really can't have one of your forwards who rarely touches the ball doing some of the things he does and some of the lapses he yeah. has on defense so yeah, that's that's where I'd be in, ter in terms of who's playing. I think you have the right guys on the court. Uh, everyone wants Dwan to play more. I agree with that when he's playing well. And guess what? When he plays well, he gets more minutes. He played a ton against DePaul. He played like 28 minutes or something. I mean, like he was in there for a lot of the game against DePaul. I don't think um, their decisions on how much they're playing Dwan Odom is what's costing this team at all. Yep. Well, Rick, so now... This week marks a month away from the Big East tournament. Xavier has eight games left. Seton Hall, Connecticut, St. John's, UConn again. So a crazy stretch coming up here before Providence, Seton Hall again. Then St. John's and Georgetown. Georgetown's really the only game of the rest of this schedule where you look at it and you say, all right, there's a win because Georgetown is 206. It's 206. We don't need to go on about Georgetown right now because that's a month away. But Georgetown has lost 11 games in a row. They are 206th in the conference. Georgetown is what everybody thinks DePaul is. And Georgetown, Georgetown is embarrassingly bad. I mean, you look at the pictures that come out of Capital One Arena and the lack of fans that are at those games. It is empty. And it is, it's a sad state of affairs right now for a team that won the Big East. might have been fool's gold, but they won the Big East tournament last year. And now all of a sudden you're back to the worst year under Patrick Ewing and the worst year that program's had in a long time. But if you're looking at the eight games that Xavier has the rest of the way, Georgetown at 206 and Ken Palm, nobody else lower than 84. The 84 is St. John's. The other teams, 37, 41, and 18. This is a very tough part of Xavier's schedule, taking you right in to the NCAA tournament and the Big East tournament. Well, I think the big concern there is that UConn, a massive, physical, tough defensive team that's going to take you out, out of what you want to do on the offensive end, that's a tough matchup for Xavier. Seton Hall is like uh, a bigger, but kind of wannabe version of UConn. They're not as good defensively, not as good as all that stuff, but like a similar team in the fact that they're going to try to beat you up, take you out of what you want to do on the offensive end, and they're going to try to win by getting to the free throw line and, and scoring in the paint. So in some ways, I think that Seton Hall game is a good warm-up for the UConn game and kind of get Xavier in that mentality of how they're going to have to win in those two, because it's going to be a, a physical matchup in both games. And they're going to have to deal with a lot of size, which I don't think they've really handled. Well, defensive rebounding is going to be a big concern in those two games. Um, and then St. John's they for whatever reason, going back a handful of years, they've seemed to struggle with that fast paced style of St. John's at different times. And Julian Champagny is the best player in the conference and Xavier has no matchup for him as far as I can see. I mean, you're going to have to put Colby Jones on him, I would think, 
for as much of that game as possible. And Colby hasn't really developed into the defensive stopper that we hoped he might have by this point. So uh, that's going to be a really tall task for him. You're right. These are these are some tough games coming up for Xavier, whether they're at home or on the road. And aside from that Georgetown game, I don't think you can pencil any of them as a win right now. At the same time, I do not agree with some of the Xavier fan base that they're going to struggle to win one or two games the rest of the year. I think they will probably win around half of these games. Yeah. Xavier's at 16 and six right now, six and five in the big East. Uh, They're going to come up one game short of playing the full 20 because that Georgetown game isn't going to get rescheduled. Bit of a brutal rescheduling break for Xavier to have to play at Seton Hall on Wednesday and then come home less than 48 hours later and play Connecticut on Friday night. But that's just the way it happens. It's just the way it it breaks down. Connecticut, they have one extra day in there. They're at home against Marquette tomorrow night, Tuesday night. but Xavier has one one last day. They'll be in Newark against Seton Hall, and then back home against Connecticut for two straight uh, two straight at home, Connecticut and St. John's. But Rick, this is a grueling part of the schedule for Xavier, and it's coming at not the most opportune time with the way that everything's trending right now. So for Xavier, the magic number feels like is twenty. It feels like that's where you're going to feel really comfortable at. If you're a Xavier fan, you hope that you pick up one win, if not more, but you hope you pick up at least one win at Madison Square Garden. And uh, and that sends you on your way. And then however it breaks in March, it, it well, breaks. Well, look, we said prior to the uh, or after the win at Creighton, which that was a huge game. They And especially now after they lost at home to DePaul, they really needed that quad one win at Creighton. But we said after that Creighton game, if they win that, you've got the DePaul and Butler game, which you hope you go 2-0 in. They didn't. But uh, basically, if you go 2-0 there, you just need – what would we say? They needed – Oh, they said after the Creighton game, they needed five wins. And hopefully you get two of them against DePaul and Butler. You only got one. So basically we're looking at now over the final eight games, can this team go four and four? And I think they can. It's it's definitely not a guarantee the way things are trending, but it's also not out of the realm of possibility that they could be five and three. And we're looking at them and saying, okay, right about where we expect them to be and uh, in a really good spot. And here's the disappointing thing for a lot of people that are are listening, and I know they'll just can maybe shaking their heads at this, is that we're asking ourselves, can the Xavier team go four and four? Xavier has four home games the rest of the way. Xavier has four away games the rest of the way. In any other year, you'd be thinking to yourself, okay, those four home games, there you go. Like Xavier should be able to win at home and, and get it done. And this year, Xavier's, I don't want to say struggled at home. I'm not going to make, mountains out of molehills here but certainly losing to providence losing to depaul squandering a chance against villanova where you come back late in the second half and have a chance in that game well how big is that loss now you know the fact yeah. that you couldn't get on track there against a, a depaul team that you were capable or a villanova team that you matched up well with were capable of beating and really had you not have one of your futile stretches on offense you should have won that game yeah so xavier does have Four home games left, four away games left, and then they're off to Madison Square Garden. And uh, this is a huge stretch. This is a massive stretch of the season. I think I, I don't want to be dramatic here and and go too far down the rabbit hole of how big this stretch is. But I think for a lot of reasons, this is a really big stretch for this program and how Xavier responds against some really good teams, even St. John's being in there at 84. Like, they're nothing to shake your head at. St. John's has definitely shown this year that they have an ability to at least be in games. The thing with St. John's is they just don't have the good win, right? I mean, they, they don't have one win where you're looking at it going, okay, well, they beat Seton Hall. Seton Hall is the only win that St. John's has in, on Ken Palm above 117. Like that's – or so, well, sorry, they beat DePaul. That was 103. But St. John's doesn't have that good win. They've been in games – but they ha- they don't have that that huge win. They were right in that Providence game a couple of weeks ago. So you got to beat St. John's at home. You got to beat Georgetown at home. Then you're looking at two other wins there. 
right? If you can get those done, you're looking at two other wins the rest of the way. Maybe a sneak one against Providence on the road, whatever. We don't have to do all these hypotheticals, but I'm saying there are opportunities here and there are big opportunities for Xavier to make a statement. And it's just a question of how they respond to do it. Yeah, I do actually think that Providence team is one they match up best with out of the the teams remaining aside from Georgetown. So I'm not rolling that game out by any stretch, even though they've struggled at the dunk in the past. But you're talking about St. John's not having a good win. Um, The Xavier team, their last win against what we would say is a NCAA tournament team right now was December 18th against Marquette. So, I mean, they're kind of – looking to be in a similar spot the way things are going right now they need to get back on track definitely and you know as much as people are focused on the offense and we talked about this the offense this whole time on the podcast the defense actually dropped two spots farther in Ken Palm than the offense did over the last week so they haven't been really good on either side and I mean in terms of the defense I see a team that makes a lot of what I would call lack of focus mistakes those are things that I see keep cropping up um for instance, late in the DePaul game, Cravassier McCauley comes down in transition and gets a wide open three-pointer to put DePaul back up by five. I think it was a two-point game at the time. And he had 18 points at the time. I mean, he was on fire. He was clearly the best player on the court, and no one's picking him up. There, two guys are guarding somebody else. Paul Scruggs realizes it last second, tries to sprint across the floor over to Cravassier, and, and he's knocking it down, and the play-by-play guy is making another Cravassier alcohol pun joke. I mean, the guy scored 21 points and we were making puns the entire game. Come on, be better. But that's neither here nor there. I just like to me, it's a lot of stuff like that. And we're going to see it against St. John's too. Like, can you realize that you have to sprint back in transition on every single possession or you will give them a layup? Because I remember a year ago, that was an issue. Zach Fremantle getting beat back on the other end because he's not sprinting back occasionally. You can't have those lack of focus type things when you're a Xavier team that isn't overwhelmingly talented. You have to be good at all the attention to detail things. You have to be very detail oriented. You can't have these slip ups. You can't have the bad decision-making on offense. You can't have the lack of focus on defense. You got to tighten those things up. Yep. Well, Rick, uh, we have at Seton hall on Wednesday home against UConn on Friday and the Bengals and the super bowl on Sunday when we record next week, we could be living in a very different world one way or the other. <laughs> it will be. And uh, I just want to, last thing I want to say is just to be clear um, for everyone, like on the message board and on Twitter, be as mad as you want, be as pessimistic as you want about the team. I don't get mad about that. I don't ban anybody for being negative about the team. The only thing I tell people not to do is to, some of you get angry at your team So you come on and you reply to every other poster on the site every time they post and you troll them and you are annoying. And so that that, that's when I then have to ban you or or send you a private message has nothing to do with the content of your messages, has everything to do with the fact with you're annoying and making it hard for me to run the business. I'm only doing what's good for the message board so I can make money. I really don't care if you're mad about your team or not. And I'm not discouraging you from being mad. You can say whatever you want. The problem is you're not going to sit there and troll a bunch of Xavier fans who are paying to be on the site. You can do that on social media for free or on XavierHoops.com where they let you do that for free. You're not going to do it on my site. And also when I say the inexcusable stuff, I'm making fun of you idiots. Like you all act like you have any impact on any of this. You don't. There are a couple people on our message board who do. And if those people want to act crazy, I'm more than willing to hear it from them. I'm willing, the guys that have their names on buildings around CentOS, a couple of those are on our message board. If they want to talk about this is inexcusable or I demand better, I'll listen to it from them. But from like Jim up in section 218 who wants to get on the board and, and talk about it's inexcusable and we can't have this happen. Like, what are you going to do about it, Jim? Honestly, you're watching your favorite school because you want to support your college. Just just support it. You can be mad about it. Like, what? But like with the inexcusable stuff, what the hell does that mean? But we can't accept this. We, we're, we're accepting mediocrity. No, you're not. You're watching basketball. You have no impact. They have no idea what you think about the program. They have no idea what I think about the program. Me and Adam Baum asking harder questions or getting mad at Travis Steele, which I don't even know what the hell that's supposed to mean. Like, what do you want us to do? Travis, you sucked in that game. What do you have to say about it? Like, what is that going to do? You know, we're asking about the things that are happening. I don't like whatever. 
point being that I do not care if you think your team sucks. I do not care if you think the coach needs to be fired. All of that is fair game. You can say whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you otherwise, but I am going to make fun of you when you guys say stupid, irrational things like it's inexcusable and act like you're accepting mediocrity, like you have any impact on the program whatsoever. Nobody cares what you think. I hate to tell you that, but no one at Xavier knows you exist as a fan. It's great that you spend your money on a couple tickets a year or whatever. Some of you even have season tickets. You're not making a difference. I hate to tell you that. Like the people with their names on the buildings, they control the direction of the program, not you guys. So quit telling me it's inexcusable and people are accepting mediocrity because they're not throwing tantrums as grown men online. That is what we are making fun of when we talk about this stuff. And that is where this all is. I think people get it confused that I like, am defending Xavier or defending Travis Steele. I'm not. I don't care. The end. That's all I got. (laughs) All right. Well, Rick, on that note, you've been listening to another episode of the Musketeer Report podcast. Uh, Thanks to everybody for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back next week. It'll be a huge week uh, around the area. Xavier, the Bengals, everything going to be a huge week. So a glass half full, everybody. Keep your heads up. The Xavier team still got a lot of big opportunities left the rest of the way. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Roll the ball out there. You're watching a game. Enjoy it. So we'll see what happens. But thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.